The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. A huge topic, perhaps the most important topic in Buddhist practice. And I'm going to uh, talk about some things and then also read from the Dhammapada. How many of you are familiar with the Dhammapada? Anybody? Yeah, a little bit. Good. I'm sorry? Uh huh. Okay. Well, I wasn't for many years either. <laughs> Actually, not so much until Gil came out with his translation uh, several years ago. There's a whole chapter, chapter three, on the mind. And in my group in Morgan Hill, we're using the Dhammapada as a study guide. So it's very fresh. So I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's what I'll talk about this morning. That would be good. So anybody want to share what you learned or what you experienced of the mind during that meditation? Yes, that's one of, uh, well, that's one of my mind's favorite topics, planning, yes. There are certain patterns that, um, that our minds follow. We all do, all of them, but um, just like with the hindrances, each mind tends to have a particular pattern that repeats and as you said, planning, that's my pattern. So when I'm lost in thought, it's invariably planning. It could be planning meals. It can be planning events. It can be planning. Sometimes I sit here and plan my talk. <laughs> um, there's criticizing. Some people's minds are constantly critical, uh, judging. Some people's minds are rehearsing, rehearsing some something they're going to say or some event or reviewing. There are many different patterns. Uh, and like I say, we all do all of them. But often particular minds seem to go in the same rut. <laughs> they seem to go in the same neuronal pathway, I guess, um, every time. And it can be very useful for us to see that, to, to recognize what the habit of our mind is. Then we're more likely to catch it when it happens. And typically we see it during meditation, which then allows us to see it more clearly in our everyday lives. That's the point of meditation, you know, to begin to see things clearly, to be very mindful, so that we can be mindful in our everyday lives. So the first page of the Dhammapada starts off telling us the importance of the mind. It says, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. 
speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows as a never-departing shadow. And we see throughout the Buddha's teachings this comparison, this uh, contrasting, we might say, what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. And you probably know as well as I do, the mind can lead us to incredible suffering. Right? Yeah? Yeah. Sometimes when the mind is out of control, that means we're, we're not aware. Um, it's just running on. It's just proliferating. Um, it's often very harsh, very cruel, very critical. We live in a society that values criticism. We think that's a good way to raise our children. <laughs> we think it's a good way to speak to ourselves. If we're very critical, then that will be the motivation to improve. And so there's a lot of harsh judgment in our, cul- in our culture. And many of us have internalized that. And we can be very, very cruel to ourselves, sometimes for very small things. Uh, you probably have experienced as I have, missing a turnoff on the freeway. Oh my gosh, you'd think it was the end of the world. <laughs> you know, it may take five minutes to <laughs> go a different way. But the mind can just berate us for such a small thing. Oh, you're so stupid, you're so forgetful, you don't pay attention, and on and on and on. So the last two verses in chapter 3 suggest this, that the mind, our own mind, can do more harm to us than our worst enemy. Isn't that something? Likewise, the mind can be more beneficial, do more good for us than our parents or other close relatives. So the mind is very powerful for good or not so good. And so that's why it's important that we pay attention to the mind, that we see the workings of the mind. Not so much in a judgmental, critical way, but more in a, a, a matter-of-fact way, a way of just paying attention, seeing the workings of the mind very clearly. Sometimes when people first come to mindfulness practice, and, uh, or especially on retreat, and they see the workings of the mind, it can be very discouraging. It can be very um, 
difficult and challenging, and sometimes it sends people away. They don't want to see it. It's too harsh. It's too difficult. And it feels totally out of control, like there's nothing they can do to change it. And it can be very, very discouraging. But if we're willing to work a little bit, to be very mindful, to be diligent and vigilant, which is the second chapter in the Dhammapada, then we begin to see we don't have to follow every, every train or every um, path of thought that the mind goes down. There's a teacher in the East Bay that likens the mind to a popcorn machine. And he says, it's just constantly throwing up thoughts. Who knows where they come from? You know, they come unbidden. They're just constantly being thrown up. And our job is to let them just fall down. But of course we don't. We latch on, you know, this popcorn and this popcorn. And that's how we suffer. Because we latch on to any thought. And then we believe it. (laughs) That's the worst of it. If we didn't believe it, it wouldn't be so bad. But we latch on and we believe it. We think it's true. You know, I have to say, I heard that, that we don't have to believe our thoughts for years before I finally got it. And one day I was, I think it was a judgment of some sort. And I just realized, you know, I don't have to believe that. I don't know that that's true. That's just what I'm accustomed to hearing. Uh, Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. What a relief. What freedom to let go of that judgment that I had probably held since I was a kid. And I finally really got it. That just because my mind believes it or throws it up doesn't mean I have to believe it. It's just a thought. You'll hear that over and over and over again in Buddhist teachings. It's just a thought. And that may sound silly because our thoughts are so pervasive and seem so real. But they're not. They're just thoughts. They're just things that come in, and if we let them, they can go right back out. Like the clouds in the sky, we say. (laughs) Of course, that's easier said than done. But we can begin to view our thoughts as clouds. They come in. Who knows where they come from? They come from our conditioning. They come from our culture. They come from our family, from our school, from Buddhist practice. Who knows where they come from? We can let them pass through and go on. We don't have to latch on to them, and we certainly don't have to believe them. Now, sometimes, once in a while, (laughs) there's a very useful thought. There's a true thought. There's a thought that's very helpful. And our job is to learn to recognize those thoughts and then go with them. 
But so much of our thinking is repetitive, is about this ego. Watch, just pay attention and see how much of your thinking has to do with yourself. It's what I like, it's what I don't like, it's what I understand, what I don't understand, what I value, what I don't. It's all related to me. I remember saying one time many years ago, it was, it was appalling, it was sort of sickening to see how much of my thinking was in relation to me. And over and over Gill says, you know, we can think about ourselves all day long and never get tired of it. <laughs> Except that if you're very mindful and you begin to see it, I think you'll find, as I did, you get tired of it. It gets very old. So there's another analogy that I rather like, um, that our thinking is like a train. And so we're sitting here quietly following our breath and a thought comes and we jump on the train. And then sometimes we go down many stops before we jump off. But with our mindfulness practice, we can learn to jump off sooner and sooner and sooner. So my mind still hops on, but fortunately it hops off much faster than it used to. Sometimes we talk about living in the commentary of our lives. Again, if you'll notice, there's a running commentary. I'm walking my dog, and I'm constantly talking to myself. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. Oh, isn't that pretty? Oh, isn't that ugly? Oh, I wonder what they're doing there. Oh, I wish they wouldn't do that. I wish the gardeners would be more careful. On and on and on and on. Often with a lot of judgment. But our practice is about letting go of that commentary, at least as much as we can, and being with the direct experience of our lives. The direct experience which is actually much more pleasant. It's much richer. It's, uh, it's more real. It's what's actually going on than the commentary. But we have to learn to catch that commentary because it goes on all the time and it can be like the air we breathe. We don't even realize it. But hopefully through meditation, we begin to see this running commentary that is not really our experience. It's a comment on our experience. Almost like the difference between the suttas and the commentaries. (laughs) The suttas are the direct teachings. The commentaries are very useful because they explain the teachings, but they're not the teachings. And in many ways, the commentary we live in is not as useful as the Buddhist commentary because it's frequently laced with judgments and untruths and 
um, a lot of extraneous stuff that that really not only isn't necessary, but creates just a little distance from our direct experience. So, you know, we often talk about the direct experience of a flower. And there's the sutta, maybe you've heard, where the Buddha held up a flower and one of his monks was enlightened. Just the direct experience of a flower. But so often, we don't just directly experience the flower. We see it, and then the mind starts in. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I like daisies better. Oh, that looks kind of, you know, droopy, or on and on and on. It's not as pretty as the one I saw yesterday. (laughs) Whatever, we're comparing, we're judging. We're not just experiencing that flower. Or anything, of course. So, let me begin. Um, I'll read, I don't know if we'll get through all of this, but I'll read some of it. And I think you'll recognize many of the adjectives. (laughs) There are many adjectives uh, describing the mind, and probably you have experienced them. And also you'll see the continuing uh, relationship or comparison between what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. The restless, agitated mind, hard to protect, hard to control. The sage makes straight as a fletcher the shaft of an arrow. So we've all undoubtedly experienced the restless, agitated mind, hard to control. Somebody was saying last night, you know, she wakes up in the middle of the night, and of course the mind is going. And she feels it's very hard to control. (laughs) She tries to remind herself, this is not thinking time, this is sleeping time. She tries following her breath, and the mind is so compelling. It's so strong that it just goes on. It just ruminates. And uh, it can feel very, very hard to get any kind of control over. Hard to protect. In Buddhist practice, the mind is the sixth sense. And we talk about protecting the sense doors, all of the sense doors. And what does that mean? That means not allowing um, sensual uh, stimuli to, to provoke us we might say. So, uh, you know, we see something beautiful and the eyes go out to what is beautiful and then we can start a whole commentary on that. Protecting the sense door of the eye and the mind means not allowing that. We can see something lovely 
and just appreciate it. Reminds me of the story when the Dalai Lama was being driven down Highway 1, which has got to be one of the most beautiful drives in the world, right? And he said to his uh, driver, I hope you all enjoy this. (laughs) We have such beautiful, such a beautiful coastline. We can enjoy it. We can enjoy it without grasping or without a lot of commentary about it. Just enjoying it. So the sage makes straight this restless, agitated mind as the Fletcher makes straight the arrow. I just learned last night that that Fletcher is an English word um, that refers to the maker of the arrow. Like a fish out of water thrown on dry ground, this mind thrashes about trying to escape Mars command. You get the image, don't you, of a fish out of water. You know how they flap about when they're taken out of water. And doesn't it sometimes seem that's what the mind is doing, just flapping about? Trying to escape Mara's command. Do you know Mara? Mara is sometimes called the Buddhist devil, but more than devil, Mara represents temptation. So Mara is the personification of temptation, the temptation that pulls us away from being present, that pulls us away from our mindfulness or from our skillfulness or whatever. You know, it's said on the night of his enlightenment, the the Buddha, of course not the Buddha then, but Siddhartha was uh, visited by Mara. Mara sent his beautiful daughters. Uh, You can picture, you know, beautiful young Indian women uh, with their jewelry and their beautiful saris and dancing and tempting the Buddha. And the Buddha said, Mara, I see you. And with that, Mara slunk away. The, the lesson being that we don't have to push Mara away or push temptation away. We don't have to resist it. We don't have to be reactive. We can simply see it. And in the scene, there's clarity. And we don't have to go after it. We don't have to follow it. So trying to escape Mara's command. We recognize the strength of Mara in our lives. There are many temptations, many, many temptations, distractions that try to grab us. You know, don't, don't just sit and meditate. Come do this. Come do that. All of our advertising is about come do this or come get that. A distraction from the important things, the value of our lives. 
The mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes. One does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. And again, probably we've all experienced that. That when the mind is flitting around, um, sometimes in meditation, right? It, it just goes from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. It's exhausting. <laughs> if you're paying attention and you see it jump from thing to thing, it can be exhausting. When we can learn to tame the mind, okay, okay, just relax. You know, this is meditation time. We don't need to go from thing to thing. The disciplined mind brings happiness. It's much more pleasant, really, to sit with a quiet mind, uh, a luminous mind. You know, the, the natural state of the mind is luminous or clear or bright. And when we experience that, we see how much more enjoyable that is. How much more happiness that bright, awake, alert, luminous mind is. So... Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. So again, there's the, the comparison, the, um, the unlearned or sometimes the fool, the unpracticed person, and the practiced person, the person who practices diligently and understands and sees the way and the happiness that that brings compared to the undisciplined, whether it's, um, uh, however it's undisciplined. Cultivating the mind, you know, the fifth precept in our list of precepts is that of not clouding the mind, not introducing whatever, drugs or alcohol or pornography or violent movies or, you know, whatever else clouds the mind, but cultivating the mind. We develop or we cultivate a clear mind and not allow it to be defiled, we could say, clouded by, um, by unskillful 
things. The mind, hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes. The sage protects. The watched mind brings happiness. There it is again. The sage protects. The watched mind brings happiness. Far-ranging, solitary, incorporeal, and hidden is the mind with, without a body, without a physical existence and hidden often very subtle as I said sometimes the the mind um, feels like the air we breathe it just goes on and we're unaware because we're so accustomed to being involved in its thinking those who restrain it will be freed from Mara's bonds So again, the reference to Mara, which comes up over and over, and the the bond, the hold, the bondage that Mara or the temptations can have over us. For those who are unsteady of mind, who do not know true Dharma, and whose serenity wavers, wisdom does not mature. So, to develop wisdom, we need to steady our mind. It's very hard to develop insight and wisdom when the mind is all over the place, all these thoughts and all these distractions. And so, concentration practice, following the breath, or metta, or whatever we use, is a way to calm the mind. You've probably experienced, especially in the evening, you sit down to meditate, and especially after a full day, the mind is just going and going and going. But if we very uh, vigilantly keep coming back to the breath or our object of meditation, then gradually the mind begins to settle. And then there's more possibility of insight, of understanding. So learning to develop or cultivate a steady, a clear mind. All of this, of course, is not easy, doesn't happen in an instant, but it's why we practice. It's how we practice, that we develop this steadiness so that with a steady, calm, even luminous mind, we can see more clearly. We see ourselves. We see life. We understand more clearly. For one who is awake, whose mind isn't overflowing, whose heart isn't afflicted, and who has abandoned both merit and demerit, fear does not exist. For one who is awake, whose mind isn't overflowing, overrunning, going and going and going, often uh, uh, reaching out, uh, wanting this, wanting that, grabbing onto this, grabbing onto that, whose heart isn't afflicted, 
whose heart isn't full of ill will, avarice, um, you know, the afflictive or the, we sometimes call negative emotions, and who has abandoned merit and demerit, who has abandoned all our notions of good and bad, right and wrong. We draw these, these distinctions. Rumi has a very lovely poem that says, out beyond right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. I think that sounds so inviting. <laughs> I'd love to meet there. But the question always comes up, well, don't we have to discern what's right and what's wrong? Uh, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. If we use the teachings of the Buddha, if we look at things through compassion and loving kindness rather than right-wrong, we might be able to make more skillful decisions. But we're so accustomed and we're so attached to right and wrong. One, one of the women in my group last night said that she had just noticed recently how much her mind wants to make her right. <laughs> and she said she never would have thought that. You know, she never would have said, oh yeah, I'm really concerned about being right. But as she's been paying attention, she is noticing how much, in a way, I guess, critical, you know, how you're not doing it the way I do it. And you should. <laughs> it's not okay. There's a right way to do it, and it's the way I do it. <laughs> we all probably have some of that. But seeing it, you know, there's not a right way. <laughs> there's a compassionate way. There might be a skillful way. It isn't necessarily right. It isn't necessarily wrong. But we divide our world up into right and wrong. And in a way, it's so superficial. And in a way, it can be harmful. If we come from an open heart, a compassionate heart, a loving heart, then it's less important who says or who considers what's right and what's wrong. It's what is compassionate. Knowing this body to be like a clay pot, establishing this mind like a fortress, one should battle Mara with the sword of insight, protecting what has been won, clinging to nothing. Knowing this body to be like a clay pot. What do you think that refers to? What happens to clay pots? They break. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. They're also containers. Uh huh. The value of the pot is the emptiness inside. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Right. 
Yes, knowing this body to be like a clay pot, establishing this mind like a fortress. Yeah. So that we can be discriminating, discerning, and not let in a bunch of junk. Um, There's a lot of junk out there, (laughs) right? (laughs) I happened to be at somebody's house a couple weeks ago where the TV was on, and oh my gosh, was there junk. (laughs) I don't have cable, and I actually don't watch anything but PBS. And I had no idea the amount of junk (laughs) that was out there. And just, you know, assaults. The mind, there's good stuff too, I understand that, but there's a lot of junk that can just assault the mind. And so if we develop our mind like a fortress that doesn't let all that bombard us, one should battle Mara with the sword of insight. Insight is our our greatest, um, I don't want to, our greatest tool, developing mindfulness and insight, protecting what has been won. Sometimes we have made great advances in this practice, and then we get kind of complacent or lazy, and we can lose some of it. So it's important that that we protect what we have developed, continuously protect it, so that we don't backslide and cling to nothing. Nothing. As Dogen said, there's nothing worth clinging to as I, me, or mine. But just, there's nothing worth clinging to. All too soon, this body will lie on the ground cast aside, deprived of consciousness, like a useless scrap of wood. We don't like to think of these bodies in those terms, but, you know, death practice is very important in Buddhist practice. Coming to terms with the fact that we will die, this vessel will be broken, and it will be tossed on the ground like a useless scrap of wood. (laughs) we cling so tightly to our bodies we're so identified with them not just as vessels not just as containers um, but as our identity and we beautify them and we do this and we do that and we don't think about you know they will die they are Functional. (laughs) Jack Cornfield says, you can see the body as a tube. And we put things in at the top, and they go through and come out at the bottom. (laughs) That's a functional description of the body. And, And the idea is to lessen our attachment to our bodies, to see them for what they are, and not be so... Uh, attached to whatever, their beauty, their um, identity. They're just functional. 
That's a hard concept for us. And, and as I said, death practice is, is an essential practice in Buddhist understanding. The practice of acknowledging to ourselves that we will die. That one day we will not be here. This carcass will be tossed aside. We don't like to think about that. But it's true. You know, there's a saying, what's, what's the most amazing thing in the world? Do you know that? The most amazing thing is that death is happening all around us, and we all think it won't happen to us. <laughs> and we can all relate to that on some level, right? We can say, yeah, intellectually, of course I know I'm going to die. Of course I know all my loved ones are going to die. But we don't actually embody that or experience that. We sort of think, yeah, but not now. (laughs) Or not me. So the last two verses are what I said before. Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy or haters one to another, far worse is the harm from one's own wrongly directed mind. Allowing the mind to go out in ways that are not skillful. Neither mother nor father nor any other relative can do one as much good as one's own well-directed mind. So the mind can be our worst enemy. It can also be our best friend. And as I said, I find that inspiring. That this mind that, that often does me harm can also do me enormous good. And does. Serves me very well sometimes. As long as I'm alert and paying attention and allow what is skillful to arise and what is unskillful to just pass through and not take hold, not, not believe it, not jump on it. So I've been talking steadily for <laughs> 40 minutes or so. Um, Do you have comments or questions, concerns, experiences maybe? How have you experienced your mind? I have a question. Mm -hmm. The depiction of Mara is... um, Often a, a an ex seems like an external force, and in some Buddhist traditions, it is um, very much seen as an external force. And my understanding is in a Theravada pre- depiction or conception of Mara, um, it's seen as an internal um, process, shadow or some kind of um, internal motivation, part of the psyche. 
So I'm wondering, as a psychotherapist <laughs> and from my experience of you, influenced by other Mahayana traditions, um, what your understanding and, and idea of Mara is and whether there are actually external forces acting on us to rather that are malevolent as opposed to just the distracting or seductive aspects of Mara? Yeah, that's a good, a good question. I think uh, it's both. Um, there obviously are external distractions, external forces that pull us and uh, that we can get caught up in that lead us way astray. Mara can, as you say, also be the recognition of those, those forces within us, defilements, uh, the poisons, all those things that pull us away, that take us away from our true nature, from our true luminous mind. And in many ways, they're not so different, whether it's external or internal. But often it's easier to talk about, it's easier to see an external force. So we talk about Mara as being external and tempting the Buddha. Um, But you're right, it can just as well be the internal forces, the internal um, um, greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, lack of of understanding, lack of clarity. that allows us to be pulled out and allows us to cloud the mind to um, we're often overcome by very very strong emotions right and those emotions can get in the way of our seeing things clearly of our acting skillfully Um, And so awareness is always our most important tool. Uh, The mindfulness that leads to insight and clarity, whether the force is from outside or within us, being able to see it clearly. Because if we see it, then we have some choice may not always feel that way but we do have some ability to choose if we don't recognize it if we don't even see it we have no choice we are just taken reactive we react without noticing that choice point where we could make a different choice Does that speak to it? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Andy. Good, good question. Well, I guess one thing I've discovered is that if the mind gets a 
sorry. I guess if one of, one of the things I discovered is that if the mind gets into planning, you can just sort of peacefully postpone it and say this is a good thing, but not now. <laughs> uh, and you can you can uh, the desire to plan can come out of engaged concern or can come out of agitation and anxiety, and you can just say, well, if you're uh, planning now, it's while you're meditating, it's really coming out of agitation. And so your planning is good, but you want to plan for the right motive, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Planning is often seen as a way of handling anxiety. It's a way of control. And if we can control things, then we feel better. Uh, At least we think we're controlling (laughs) So we think we're feeling better. Um, Any kind of thinking takes us out of the present moment. And, you know, with the hindrances, we often talk about how the hindrances rescue us. (laughs) If there's something going on that we don't really want to see or we don't really want to experience, then the mind can pull us off. Um, When I was was first meditating, I used to have a lot of pain in my left leg. It used to go to sleep. And I saw very quickly how thinking was an escape. If I was thinking, I didn't feel the sensations. And uh, coming back wasn't exactly pleasant. (laughs) It wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. But it was more important, more valuable to be present for the sensations than to get lost in the thinking. But when they got very strong, I'd be off thinking. And then I'd have to come back and come back and come back. Yeah. Yes? Uh, so I'm wondering if we can go back to the part of your talk. I It really spoke to me when you mentioned the difference between right or wrong as your lenses versus compassion. <laughs> it feels like such a big sight of relief. Like, I don't <laughs> right. have to decide. <laughs> you know, so I'm wondering if you can talk more about how to practically implement that if you want that to be your lens. How to let go of the right and wrong. That helps. The judgment. <laughs> Yeah, like everything, seeing it, seeing it. Seeing how often we separate things into right and wrong. Just like my friend was saying, you know, noticing how often I think my way is right. And then often when we do that, we can sort of chuckle, you know. We realize immediately Oh, it's not right. It's my way. (laughs) And I want my way to be right. It would be nice if my way were right and everybody else would do it that way. So we can do it kind of lightheartedly. So seeing how often we divide things and then just remembering we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. Now, people sometimes think, well, but, but then we could do anything. You know, we wouldn't have any morals. We wouldn't have any scruples. And, of course, that's just not true. 
um, if we come out of compassion, if we come out of loving kindness, our deepest heart's desire, we're not going to be unscrupulous. <laughs> we're not going to do so-called wrong things. But we're going to maybe let go of some of that self-righteousness, some of that indignation that things aren't being done my way or the right way. Um, I... <laughs> I have a silly example, but, um, you know, I have a dog, and I very much uh, value having my dog off-leash. And I live in a complex where the rule is, they must be (laughs) on-leash. And I'm always right there. I have bags. I always pick up the excrement, you know. Uh, my dog has never harmed anybody or done anything terrible. But there are those who will say, the dog's not on leash. Put your dog on a leash. There's no, I mean, 8 o'clock on Sunday morning sometimes. You know, nobody's out. There's nothing he could do to bother anybody. Your dog's not on leash. Or I'm walking down the sidewalk that's not even part of the complex, and a neighbor says, he's off leash again. It's like, (laughs) you know, it's a law, it's a rule, you're supposed to follow it. And there's no compassion, there's no thought of whether it makes sense, whether it's, you know, a useful, it's the rule. (laughs) And that that kind of, that's very irritating, you know. but it's a, like I say, a sort of superficial example of how we can, how we can get attached to right and wrong without any consideration of the whole picture. Thanks so Is much. That? That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Hope it helps. <laughs> so it's eleven o'clock. Um, we probably should stop, and I'll be around if anybody has further questions. So thank you for your attention, and please have a good rest of your day.